uh, today John is sick, so you get a double dose of me. And um, I always like to uh, honor what we're doing at the 1030 service by following the readings as John would have us do them and, and following the course he's set. However, uh, the readings today were from Matthew 6, 16 all the way through 34. In Matthew 6, 16 to 18, in my viewpoint, uh, concludes a section of the first 18 verses are one section, and then 19 through 34 is another section. So I just decided to do two messages, uh, dividing it by verses 16 through 18 for this first message, and, and the second message we'll look at Matthew 6, 19 through 34, which John will be reading to us at that time. So let's start by reading Matthew 6, 1, <clears throat> so we get the feel for the section, and then uh, we'll get right into uh, what I'm calling conditions and rewards of fasting. Matthew 6, 1, 16 through 18 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. I'm using the English Standard Version because John likes it best. Uh, that's our pew Bible. But uh, old-fashioned translations would say, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men or mankind. Uh, before other people in order to be seen by them. In other words, for that motive. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Then, uh, he, if you remember from John covering it last week, he then covers uh, prayer and giving alms, right? And then in verse 16, he covers a third subject under this heading of beware of practicing your righteousness before men. Otherwise, that's the only reward you have. So uh, in verse 16, he says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, that's the ESV. We're going to talk about how the, a couple other translations end in a second. But I want to kind of highlight some of the words I've underlined there. Whenever Jesus says beware, which he does quite often, he's basically trying to tell you this is a human condition of our sinful hearts, and it will destroy you if, you know, like, like God said to Cain, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you in the sense to kill you, to destroy you. You know, you were born into a war, whether you like it or not, and there is no true ceasefires. There's no demilitarized zones. Uh, every minute of every day, you're in a war for your soul and for the souls of others. You're in a war if you're a parent for the souls of your children and so forth. And we're in a war for the soul of our country and so forth. So beware. Jesus is saying, hey, this is something very common this is something that uh, most people get tripped up by and this will hurt you bad okay I, I don't know if I could preach that any stronger but I wish I could he's saying you know this is a 38 to the head this will kill you 
Then uh, I want you to notice that when he says that when you fast twice, he doesn't ever say if you fast. Um, There are a lot of Christian writers today who write books about fasting, and there's Barna and different organizations that study trends in the church today. And there's a lot of people who are of the mindset that many Americans don't fast very often. uh, uh, Even Christian Americans don't fast. Uh, the, ch- the church has always practiced fasting because Jesus said that when the bridegroom is taken away from you, then they will fast. Fasting needs to be a regular part of your Christian disciplines. So it's as important as reading the Bible, uh, attending you know, the Lord's Day, etc. And there are specific rewards to fasting, and if you don't use fasting, you won't have the rewards. You know, a lot of the things Jesus is talking about with rewards, he's kind of saying, like, not doing this in the Christian life is a little bit like being an employee in the old-fashioned way. Of course, nowadays they have direct deposit on Fridays. But it used to be you had to show up on Friday to get your check. <laughs> and uh, and uh, a lot of Christians don't show up to get the check, so to speak. Um the most miserable people in the world are the people who live in between. If you see a lack of joy, lack of excitement, a lack of zeal, that should be problematic in your opinion, in your heart. Look at your heart, your own heart first. So uh, then he talks about if you, if you fast with a motive of being noticed by others, just like he had already said with a giving of alms and prayer, then that's your reward. If that's what the reward you want, you'll get it. Now, the problem is, Proverbs says, the fear of man brings a snare, right? Galatians 6, 1, 10, that is chapter 1, verse 10, says, if I was still trying to please men, then I could not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. You can't have it both ways. As we're going to study in the second session, you can't serve two masters. So if you're if you're about getting an attaboy and a praise on the back, a pat on the back from people, uh, you won't you won't be seeking it from God. They're mutually exclusive categories. Now, uh, then he goes on to sit, talk about fasting in private or in secret, um, and people always ask, "Well, gee." You know, like, let's say you have a full-time cook or something. <laughs> like, well, they're probably going to need to know you're fasting, but you don't have to, like, tell, like, uh, you know, put it on Facebook or something <laughs> or something ridiculous. Uh, so then when it says, and your father who sees in secret reward, this is one of those where you, it probably pays a little bit to know about the history of translations and philosophies of translations. So all the modern translations, like New King James, King James, Geneva, uh, add, or I'm sorry, all the old translations, like New King James, Geneva 1599, which was the uh, the Bible of the Reformers, uh, they actually thought like the King James was like a, a watered-down version compared to the Geneva Bible. And uh, all of these add openly. Now, uh, there's pretty good textual evidence 
that that was kind of added because the English kind of implies it. One of the things I like about the New American Standard is often when the English kind of implies something and they think it will make the English sound a little better, they'll put it in italics, and the uh, ESV does that as well. So I always like when I'm reading an old-fashioned paper Bible, which I don't really do anymore, but when I used to, I would put a little line through the italics and read it with and without it so I could kind of get the feel of without it. Uh, in any case, um, the Greek words there, enphoneros, uh, probably Young's Literal has a better translation when it, when it adds, uh, though your father who sees in secret will reward you manifestly. Because uh, what's kind of going on here is Jesus, all through the chapter, is comparing doing things to be seen by men versus not doing it with that attitude and God rewarding, rewarding you but I think in modern times we think of openly as openly before people. And again, like he, that would be like Jesus negating what he said already. He wants to set you free from an overly, being overly concerned about that. But he's saying that it's going to be more than a reward that say you're only going to see in heaven. But it's the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians 12 with the manifestation of the Spirit or the manifest presence of God. There's going to be a tangible, concrete way that you know God rewarded you. It's not necessarily going to be in such a way that other people know God rewarded you. But it may, be, may or may not be. That shouldn't be your concern. That would take you back to bondage. Okay, so that's kind of important to see. So, really, if you kind of put all of them together, you probably get more to the heart of it with that discussion. Now, before we talk any more about this idea of being rewarded by fasting, I kind of want to reorient ourselves a little bit in the text, and I'm going to talk first about something I don't have in my notes. Um... I was really glad for what John shared last week about the Bible talking about rewards. That's been sort of a struggle area for me because, um, to be honest, I was very irresponsible before I came to Christ. I was undisciplined. I was avoiding responsibility. I was avoiding growing up. I was avoiding discipline and study habits. You name it. I was avoiding reality, God, everything. And God you know, ended up working in my life in such a way that I became very, very motivated by a sense of responsibility to a lost world. And so I've never actually thought about rewards as a Christian, and that was actually kind of a correction for me, uh, to be honest, when John kind of talked about that. Because I've always kind of like crowns, rewards, you know, I've just said, what, what the heck? You know, I'm very big on a verse we're going to talk about in both messages today that in Revelation where Jesus talks about he's coming quickly and his reward is with him. And I always say that's because his reward is him. And I would st still stand behind that. The ultimate reward is that God would actually change you so that you would want him as the ultimate reward. And you could care less, frankly, about a lot of other rewards. However, there are other rewards that come out of him in terms of a blessed life and abundant life and and uh, things like that 
that doesn't mean as in today's cheap prosperity gospel and so forth and that you'll never have any problems or you won't have any sicknesses to overcome or or endure or any sufferings or whatever it it does mean however that there that God has an atmosphere where he's chastising you as his child and there's an atmosphere where he's blessing you as his child and what I seek as a pastor always obviously I'm very motivated by evangelism I'm very motivated by having a kind of Christian community where the glory of God dwells in such a way that we're setting lots of people free and you know God uh, we seem to have developed quite a ministry here that's been very successful God bringing people really troubled to us and and uh, you know if they do the things we're going to talk about today they get you know they get blessed and set free in due time but um, nevertheless you know I want uh, I, I, I get tired sometimes of seeing you know like you can kind of you if you have any kind of discernment of spirits you can see it in people's countenances you can see some people who are just full of the spirit and joy and there's life and uh, you know there's a burden from God and, and there's spiritual clarity and you can tell there's no demonic stuff going on and and then you see other people and you go oh Lord you know they're living like it looks a little bit like pig pen and Charlie Brown except the atmosphere is spiritual around them and you and you and you what you desire it, when you have any kind of shepherding gift or pastoral gift is you want to see people blessed and you want to see people full of the spirit and full of joy in everything that they touch being fruitful and blessed and growing God will actually use lack of fruit. He'll use dryness and lots of other things to try to help you know you're not centering in on a healthy way of walking with him or a complete way of walking with him and so forth. So uh, I have to admit that I don't think about blessings enough. And I, I do tend to be so oriented towards like changing the world for Christ, I probably don't think about heaven enough. Those are two adjustments that I sometimes need to make. We will be going to heaven. I hope to be more fruitful first. So, uh, so let's reorient ourselves in, in context of the text. That was reorienting myself in context of some things that I don't always think correctly about is what I was basically saying uh, if you remember back uh, I put the dates on when the podcasts were put up I did uh, three three uh, messages on the concept of mountains in the Bible as a um, as a way of teaching that the Bible is full of symbolism so there's a garden theme, for instance, and actually the Garden of Eden is on a mountain. We know that because Ezekiel 28 tells us that. Does anyone know another reason we know that? The rivers. Who said that? You said that? Uh, yeah, because rivers don't flow uphill. <laughs> there's four rivers coming out of the Garden of Eden, so it has to be on a mountain, right? Uh, so some plumbers taught me that. I was like... Yeah, boy, that plumbing is fascinating. And they said, well, you just have to remember in plumbing that uh, uh, everything needs a trap. Nothing should leak. 
uh, things don't run uphill, <laughs> and uh, they used a different word than water. But uh, they weren't; they were worldly plumbers. But uh, and then and then they said, and then you have to remember that fr- payday is Friday. <laughs> they said that's the four things you need to know as a plumber. <laughs> so uh, so I knew that the uh, Garden of Eden was on a mountain. <laughs> uh, as well as Ezekiel 8 specifically, or Ezekiel 28 specifically says that. So, anyway, in our when we were looking at mountains, we you know, trees mean things in the Bible, rivers mean things, mountains mean things, and part of enjoying the Bible is to get the symbolism. Lampstands are churches in the Bible, etc. You know, God uh, depicts himself as the husbandman and the true vine all through the Old Testament and New. When Jesus says all these I am sayings, he's actually tying himself into things the Old Testament says about God. He's, he's, he's not just saying I am that I am, which, we, which is what he's saying, but he's also saying I am that I am. And then he's using almost every biblical metaphor of God in the Old Testament. That's why he says, I am over 40 times in the, in the Gospel of John. And he specifically ties himself into everything the Old Testament says about God. Right? So, we looked at mountains in the Old Testament through at least the first five books of the Old Testament. There's a podcast about that. I gave you where to find the podcast and what the date of when it was posted. Then we did two weeks on mountains in Matthew. And I can't review that too much today, but I do want to re- just review this much. Uh, mountains are where the heavenly sanctuary of God and the earth- earthly meet. God's purpose from all eternity was thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He lived in eternal glory where his Shekinah manifest presence fills everything like Revelation tells us at the end that there's no need for a lamp there or sun because the Lord himself is the, is the light, right? He dwells in unapproachable light, the scripture says. And God's goal from all eternity was to, through a people, export that to the earth. That's what he created the earth for in the, in the first place, and that's what he is always moving toward. The debates in eschatology are all about how much of that's going to happen before Jesus returns or how much of that will God be impotent to bring about, kind of shame what my hand is, <laughs> until, until some cataclysmic conquering event from the top down and from the outside. You know, that takes no faith to believe, even though, again, that new idea that hit the church in the late 1800s from 1890 to 1930 swept the evangelical church so big that over 95% of people believe in eschatology that no Christians ever believed, and you really have to kind of not know the whole Bible to believe it. That's why we always are trying to get people to read the whole Bible and learn how to look for the major themes and the major theme of Christ, the King of the Kingdom, all through the Bible, and the Kingdom of God progressing all through the Bible as Christ fills a people for his own possession and as he brings, uses them to bless the whole world. Okay, that's the goal that God has for you. When he calls you to himself, he didn't just call you to forgive your sins and to have you pray a sinner's prayer and punch a ticket to heaven. He called to liberate you from your fears, from your addictions, from your you know drugs, from your 
whatever you want to call it, he he want, called you to make you who you were supposed to be before the fall of man so that you could become a world-changing force all around yourself. All right, so mountains are where God's sanctuary or God's glory is the top of the mountain often, like remember how God descended on Mount Sinai and so forth? And that's why they were in an upper room because upper rooms and ladders are symbols of mountains in the Bible. That's why the Passover supper and Pentecost were in an upper room because it's a type of mountain in the Bible. So uh, mountains are where God makes covenant with his people, Mount Sinai and the Sermon on the Mount. So the Bible also has miniature mountains. Altars are miniature mountains, pillars, stones, trees, ladders. All of these are types of miniature mountains in the Bible. So Jacob's ladder was a place where the glory of God came down on Jacob. And Jesus is specifically referring to that when he tells uh, Nathaniel and Philip that you you know you believe in me because because I could t say say I saw you under the fig tree <laughs> and uh, because I know you're an Israelite with in whom is no guile you'll see greater things than this you'll see the angels of God descending and ascending uh, on you know on a ladder on basically Jacob's ladder because he's the true Jacob that Jacob foreshadowed okay so. Uh, Second thing is mountains symbolize both the presence of God and a stronghold of defense. If you read Psalms 90 and 91 and so forth, uh, I often read that to people in the hospital. But he who dwells in the presence of the Lord it, it will, draw, will dwell in the shadow or the shelter of the Almighty. Right? God's presence, that's why uh, throughout the centuries lots of churches were built to be like forts. There wasn't, that wasn't an accident. They're kind of saying like where we worship the Lord and where the presence of the Lord is, this is a place where you know the enemy is vanquished and the, let God arise and his enemies be scattered, Psalm 66 and so forth, right? Let God arise and those who hate him flee before him. So mountains symbolize the presence of God and they're a stronghold of defense. Now, uh, Matthew, deliberately records all through the book just about everything that happens in Matthew happens on a mountain and each of the mountains is symbolic and tied into things that happen in the Old Testament on the mountains for instance we covered uh, in detail in Matthew 16 when he says who do I people say that I am he didn't just do that anywhere it was the one time he took the disciples out of Israel, quite intentionally, to a mountain where Herod's temple was built, which had been built purposely on the foundation of, an, of a former temple to Caesar, where they worshipped the cult of emperor, and they worshipped the god Pan, or uh, Fawn, in uh, who, if you watch the Chronicles of Narnia, the character that's half goat and half man is is a pan or fawn. You know, it's a, I think his name is even fawn or something like that, like that, right? And they, you know, they engage in sexual relations with goats, and 
It was a very wicked place. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to build a different kind of church. Moses' church is under judgment now because they keep retreating from the nations. And they were meant to bless all the nations. God's people are called to be mediators of God's power and his presence and his salvation and his reconciliation to the world around them. And I'm going to build the kind of church that goes right to the heart of satanic worship and liberates the Satan worshipers. The perverts, the pagans, the the idol, the idol worshipers, we are going to liberate the lost and those who are held captive, as the Bible says in Colossians 1, by Satan to do his will. We're going to help them turn from, the, from, from Satan and the power of darkness to serve a living and true God. That's a pretty good mission, don't you think? You know, if, if you study like special ops and marines and stuff, there's a lot of stuff that, they, that they're all about that parallels what we're supposed to be about as Christians. You know, we're on a mission from God. <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, that's, just, that's where this uh, Matthew 6 is taking place. Now, John brought that out last week when he talked about how Jesus was deliberately went up a mountain, Matthew 5 says, right? Remember at the end of chapter 4, it says that great multitudes were coming to him. He was proclaiming the kingdom of God is in your midst, so repent. He's making disciples, and great multitudes start coming, and he heals all kinds of sicknesses and cast out all kinds of demons out of hundreds of people. And then uh, that... And that was very parallel in the scripture to the ten plagues of Egypt that delivered Israel from the bondage to Pharaoh, who's a type and foreshadowing of Satan in scripture, and the kingdom of Egypt, which is a type and foreshadowing of the world and the world system, and their slavery is a type and foreshadowing of their, their own slavery to sin. And uh, he delivers them by ten powerful pray, plagues. And Jesus duplicates that, by casting out demons and healing the sick and proclaiming the favorable year of the Lord and the kingdom of God is now in your midst. All of that was a foreshadowing of the real true Moses that Jesus really is. So John brought that out very well last week. The true Moses, uh, Jesus, the name, him. The, a lot of people don't know this, so... The, the name is more than most Christians know. Uh, it's not just that God saves or something. It's specifically Yahweh saves his people. Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is the Savior. In other words, it's about ontology. If you, if you know this in theology, you know there's the ontological attributes of the Trinity and the economic attributes of the Trinity. And the name Jesus has both of those in it. Jesus means... God is salvation, and God, Yahweh, is saving his people. And, it, and there was no accident that it was considered the most sacred name of God. YHWH is called the Tetragrammaton, and the Jews considered that such a holy name for God that they never said it. Because they understood that taking the Lord's name in vain wasn't just like when you hit your thumb and you, with a hammer and you say something you shouldn't have said. 
it, it's, it's calling yourself by the name of God and failing to live up to it in your finances, your marriage, your approach to the, to the Lord's day, your approach to giving, serving, loving, everything. That's what it means. And the Jews basically said, we can't use that name because we would always fall short of using it. And so what Jesus actually means is Jesus is going to make you qualified to use this name. So while Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. And uh, he went on to later say, whoever doesn't listen to him, he'll be cut off from his people. Uh, the next verse says, this is according to all you ask of the Lord your God in Horeb, which Horeb is also Sinai, same thing. On the day of the assembly saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore or I will die. So if you remember, the contrast here are very deliberate by Matthew. And because they're very deliberate by Jesus and he's accurately recording what Jesus was intentionally doing. So Jesus is not just going up the mountain to get the law from God. He is Yahweh. Okay, so Moses had to get a law from God and bring it down on tablets of stone to, to, uh, to tell us externally, uh, which we could never do because of the sin internally. And Jesus, who is God, is coming down to write the law on our hearts and get, go beyond the letter of the law to give us the motivation, the attitudes, and the power to do it, to set us free to be who we were always intended to be. Pretty awesome stuff. It's right there. We only covered a couple verses so far. So uh, Jesus gives his new covenant law in the Sermon on the Mount. And we already talked about ontology is the study of the being of God. So the name Jesus, Yahweh is, is Savior, means that's from all eternity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit existed as three persons. Jesus was the eternally begotten Son of God. You figure that out. He was begotten, but there was never a time when he wasn't begotten. He was begotten before time was created, outside and above time. He was always begotten. And he was always, there was always an eternal covenant. Hebrews 13, 20 talks about the blood of the eternal covenant. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, one in being, had uh, in their ontology, in their essence, had a mission, and they had decided in their mission that God the Father would send the Son to, to be our Savior, and then the Son and the Father would send the Spirit to mop up and, create, and bring a bride to, to, to the victorious Son and bring a people, which has always been God's intention from all eternity. That's why in 1 Peter 2, when he says, you're a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and so forth, he's quoting word for word Exodus 19, 5, and 6, when God made covenant with Israel. But Israel couldn't do the covenant because they said, all that he said we will do, and they began to pursue it as if it was by performance, which Paul exposes in Romans 10. I didn't mean to get into all this. Sorry. 
The mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart. I get too excited about this stuff. I need to get more laid back. I always tried to be laid back. <laughs> I never, when I, it was cool to be laid back in my previous hippie days, but I could, I, even then I couldn't be laid back. All right, so uh, just to follow John's thinking, Moses, Jesus is the true Moses, but he's so much greater than Moses. Read Hebrews 3. Well, read Hebrews 1 through 4, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, but especially the first six verses of chapter 3, where it basically compares Jesus to the, to the real Moses. Moses was just a foreshadowing of, of Jesus. So Moses receives God's covenant law on Sinai or Horeb. Yahweh, Jesus, gives his new covenant law in the Sermon on the Mountain. Moses declares Yahweh's covenant law on the Sinai. Jesus uh, declares Yahweh's covenant and law, and he begins his lawsuit against, against Jerusalem and against Israel. And uh, John covered Jesus doing this in Matthew 5, 1 through 16, which is point A there, that he covered that the attitudes and mo motivations of those transformed by the Spirit to join his mis mission of reconciliation have actually a higher standard. You know, in the Old Testament, you weren't supposed to kill, but when you're liberated by Jesus to become like him, you're liberated to, to love and to never diminish your brother by uh, saying something hurtful or pejorative or negative. That doesn't mean you don't correct and adjust, by the way. You know, we've come to a place where we're so confused nowadays uh, that... We think any correction is uh, criticism, but that's not the case. That's just a lot of times when you have a lot of hurt in your heart and a lot of bitterness, you, I know you see it that way, but you have to ask God to help you see that actually lack of correction will eventually lead to, correct, to rejection. The, people have, who, the reason people have problems in their relationship is because they can't walk in true correction with one another in a gracious spirit. So... Uh, secondly, in verses 17 to 48, Jesus gives us the right interpretation of the law with more severe than mere external obedience, right? And then lastly, uh, John focused on Matthew, in the Matthew 6, 1 through 17 chunk, he focused mostly on Matthew 6, 10 through, I think it's 15 or 14 where the, where the Lord's Prayer ends. So I'm kind of bringing out Matthew 6, 1, in his discussion of prayer, although I'm not going to go there, and alms. But he says the same thing about them as he says about fasting. So that, that's kind of now we've kind of found ourselves where we are. Now I've got 10 or 15 minutes to tell us a little bit about fasting. Uh, first of all, in the Bible, everything has conditions to get the rewards. Because if you don't have conditions to get the rewards, it's called stealing and it's called entitlement, and it's really bad for you. If you give your kids too much without their, you know, like I said to all my kids, they all got to a certain age, and they said, I'd like to have a nice bicycle like my friends. And I said, great, I'll teach you how to mow the lawn <laughs> and, and how to knock on doors and go get the money to get yourself a bicycle. That would be great. You can have a bicycle, just go earn it. So, um, 
fasting in secret or beware of practicing your righteousness before other people is one of the conditions. Now, this doesn't mean you can't someday tell testimonies. I like I really was helped myself a lot by Mahashabda's book called The Secret Power of Prayer and Fasting. Of all the books on fasting, Derek Prince has two or three really good short ones. Of course, Arthur Wallace's classic, uh, God's Chosen Fast, and so forth. But of all the ones that I've ever read that kind of motivated me to get over the next hump, it was uh, The Secret Power of Prayer and Fasting by Mahashabda, especially because he ties it into his uh, deliverance ministry and, and, the, and delivering. Uh, he, talks, he starts with this little story of this kid named Stevie, and I can't get into it. Read it for yourself. It's and uh, if that doesn't motivate you to fast, I don't know what will. Second thing is, we already mentioned, when you fast, not if. And thirdly, is he rewards you manifestly. Now, Joshua 3.7, God says to Joshua, after 40 years of being the not number one guy, I, I try to get every young Christian that I'm discipling to memorize Luke 16, 10, 11, and 12. If you're faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in much. If you're faithful in uh, that which is another's, God will give you that which is your own. And if you're faithful in the use of money, you'll get the true spiritual riches, uh, which is why like people who are chintzy with their tithes and offerings don't usually have much insight. That's actually, there's a correlation to all these things. And in fact, the worst insight of all is when you think you have more insight than you do have, that's the worst place of, of, of God withholding insight from you. And that is rampant in the church today. So there's always a condition and a reward. And so, you know, Joshua serves Moses 40 years and then Moses lays hands on him and imparts his anointing and so forth. About, you know, discipleship's not a New Testament concept, nor is it specifically a Hebrew concept. All ancient cultures of the world use discipleship. You know, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, Joshua 3.7, God says to Joshua, This day will I begin to raise you up in the sight of all Israel. And he begins to put the same respect for Mo Joshua as Moses had. Now, Joshua is far enough down the road. This is important to see because I want to tie it into this fasting and secret and openly and so forth. Joshua basically didn't care by that point. That's why the book Spiritual Authority, which we highly recommend, always says you can never put people in spiritual authority who want spiritual authority. You can never put people in ministry who want to be in ministry. You have to put people in ministry who say, I don't want to go, you know, <laughs> but I'll do whatever he says. So, um, Josh, it's not about God rewarding Joshua for his ego's sake. God only wants to put the favor on you that you need for the anointing, wisdom, and so forth you have to set people free. You get the anointing you need for the ministry you're called to do. And that's why the first thing you always want to look at is like, how's the marriage? Because if the marriage is good, the person's ready for some ministry. 
How's the finances? How's the vocational calling? So that's really important. Next thing I want to talk about is other rewards of fasting because Jesus is assuming when he talks about giving alms and prayer and fasting, he's assuming he's talking to a biblical people who know all the scriptures about fasting and prayer and alms giving in the whole Bible, right? He's talking to his disciples, not a bunch of pagans. So Psalm 35, 13, I like it in both the NASB and the ESV. Uh, so NASB says, but as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. And uh, the New King James says, to my heart. Okay, so uh, ESV says, but I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted my soul with fasting. I prayed with my head bowed down on my chest. Now, those of you who heard my fasting podcast from 2014, remember I went into the Hebrew word for that and so forth. But the idea is... um, Humility is both the reward of fasting and the condition to fast successfully. The Bible never says that God will humble you. You are called to humble yourself. However, uh, if you don't humble yourself, he will sometimes allow you to be humiliated to give you better motivation to be humbled because he loves you. Now, for a non-Christian... God often will allow them to be humiliated because blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When things aren't going right with your kids, with your marriage, with your job, with your finances, with your joy level, etc., it's because God loves you and he's trying to get your attention. And nobody comes to Christ till they begin to understand they're poor in spirit. That's why it's the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit is theirs is the kingdom of God. When you finally get to like, wow, I'm really a mess. And that's, you know, a lot of times if you've grown up as a goody two-shoes and, and uh, I, I'm actually kind of glad I was a drug addict and a drug dealer and stuff sometimes, but on the other hand, I'm not. You know, there's no glory in sin. But, uh, you know, sometimes I'm trying to reach these evangelical kids who think they're godly and so forth when they haven't, because they haven't stolen any cars lately or uh (laughs) you know ever done drugs or whatever and i'm like yeah but your complacency towards god is a bigger sin than all that it really is there's no more worse sin than to not love the lord your god with all your heart with all your mind with all your soul and all your strength and there's so many people who think of themselves as good people because They haven't actually murdered anybody except in their heart, (laughs) maybe, Uh, or whatever. And, uh, you know, again, you can tell when a person's spiritually blind when they can see the sin in everyone else and and they can't see it in themselves. So Psalm 35, 13 is a very important verse just because it gives us a promise of fasting. Now, because of time's sake, I'm not going to read Isaiah 58, 1 through 12. Um, I probably should have just changed this and brought it down here and printed it in color and made you know the one thing blue and the other red what i did was uh dark underlying the uh rewards of fasting and light underlying the conditions of fasting but if you look uh down at two-thirds of the way down 
uh, the page, I want you to understand that when it, it starts about talking a fast that I choose, okay, and uh, it's talking about specifically Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the one fast that Israel was required, every Israelite was required to fast one at least one day each year. Uh, and uh, God is correcting them for having done this fast, but they're not getting any of the rewards because all their motivations and attitudes and behaviors are wrong during the fast. So in point A, about three-quarters of the way down the page, I've summarized all the things it says about the wrong motives. Notice how many of these things are social justice issues. Now, don't make the mistake of over-spiritualizing or under-spiritualizing those things. Because that liberal and humanistic Christians tend to be only about social justice. And a lot of conservative evangelical Christians are only about like, well, we fed their soul. You know, and uh, we clothe them with righteousness in the gospel and so forth. And ultimately, through the gospel of the kingdom and through discipleship and through Christian community, you actually want to set people free. Like, like I've always said to people, like, we're, we do sometimes help people with clothes or food or whatever. But what we're all about in, dis, in discipleship is getting you to a place where you'll never need that again. Where, in fact, the Bible says, Owe not no man anything except to love one another, and where you'll always have an abundance to give. The problem with not being very mature vocationally is you need all your money for your own debts and so forth all the time. One of the great things about being where God wants you to be financially is that you progressively get to a place where you can afford to be more generous. And to use the things he's entrusted to you as stewards to bless other people. Like my boss used to always say, he said, the problem with not having any money is you think about not having your money all the time. <laughs> so uh, the rewards, there's a list of 12 of them there. Illumination or insight, healing and wholeness, righteousness, uh, manifest presence or the glory of God. By the way, I, I'm today, both in both meetings, I want to plug what's going on on Friday nights. If you're missing out on Friday nights, I, like, don't do that. I don't know what we can do. We announce it every week. Like, I, you know, myself, my wife, and certain other core people who carry the most anointing in this church, and it's not about rank or anything. It's about, like, people who God has been gracious with to set free and so forth. We kind of made a commitment to start getting here early and sitting toward the front and, and carrying us into a more powerful presence of God. And it's been awesome. Every, the expectations are growing. The turnouts, you know, we used to get like 25 people with fairly low expectations. Now we're getting like 45 people with higher and higher expectations. And there's more prophecies and there's more stuff happening and people are getting set free. If you're, you know, life in the spirit is the in a powerful presence of the Holy Spirit is the only way the Christian life makes any sense. Because the things God's called you to as a Christian aren't just difficult, they're totally impossible. They cannot be done by mere human beings. They can only be done by, by the power of the resurrection, the power of confessed sin and, and humility and going through the cross to the other side to live in his resurrection power by the power of his outpoured Holy Spirit. On that side, we can live the Christian life.
Nowhere else. The rest of it's impossible. Raising up future generations and restoration and rebuilding. You know, the Hebrews actually at the end of that, in verse 12, is actually, uh, I don't know any English translations that do it well, but uh, you can look at what's called the complete Jewish Bible and Orthodox Jewish Bible, and they do it better. But it's actually saying that your spiritual children and your, your natural children will become your spiritual children, hopefully. Uh, that's always great when that works out the way it's supposed to. And they are the ones who will restore the foundations and rebuild the world. Now, uh, I, I'm, gonna, I'm way behind. We're going to start the second meeting behind. I'm sorry, Jason, wherever he says he asked me to, uh, for the sake of uh, Deanna and Sam Chenpoon, who have to get uh, tuned up without John here today, uh, to get done a little earlier. But I, I just I want to say this. I've had three seasons regarding fasting in my overall Christian life. I came to Christ at the age 17. I was 27 years old before I had done any fast more than three days. I did a lot of one-day fast, two-day fast, and three-day fast during those 10 years. Okay, I actually don't believe it's all that wise to do more than a three-day fast when you're, when you're not 25 years old or so. Unless you're very spiritually mature, you have some spiritual covering, you already know about casting out demons, and you've you know done it and know how to do it, and you know all about spiritual warfare, and you know how to stay filled with the Spirit, and it helps if you're um, biologically fully you know coming along, and you're not that skinny. Um, you know, part of the reason I didn't fast much until. I was 27 as I weighed 160 pounds when I got married. When I became a Christian, I was six feet tall, 113 pounds. When I quit drugs, I gained 30 pounds in the first three months. And uh, then, uh, you know, I stayed between 145 and 160 for the next uh, seven years or so, or, or probably 10 years. But then as I started to put on some weight, that happened to coincide with some greater responsibilities coming in my life. Then I began to some study some things about fasting. And so from the age 27, oh, I don't know, until at least in my 30s, 40-ish probably, I did a lot of 7 to 15 day fast. And I do want to say that each of those stages, God made my life more fruitful and the anointing on my life more powerful and the ability and humility to carry it better, and the ability to stay gracious better, and not uh, critical of others and so forth. Um, and when I started in, at the age of 27 doing a series of 7 to 15 day fast, that's when I was sent by the elders of the Bowling Green Church to plant the first three churches my wife and I planted. And uh, there was a, uh, quite a bit of power and anointing. Some of you have heard some of the miraculous stories of things that happened there. And uh, people who came down from drug trips instantly and all kind of, all kind of powerful healings and deliverances and, and all kind of things. But um, when we uh, started this church, because we decided to work with more broken and troubled people, and to, to, because what had happened in the 80s is the, the mega church movement had taught that if you want to have a big church, you need to go to the suburbs and, and get uh, low-maintenance people who don't have a lot of troubles. So 
not being kind of a contrary person, I guess, we moved into the city and we started seeking out troubled people, which is how we met most of you. But, uh, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, we soon discovered that uh, things had changed. So God brings us lots of troubled people who aren't necessarily from the city. <laughs> we get them from all over the place now, suburbs, you, you name it. But uh, during uh, that season, God uh, took us through kind of doing some 21-day fast and some 40-day fast and so forth. And the fruit that came out of that uh, was all of these 12 things, all of them in much greater portions than I had ever discovered before. We couldn't do the ministry we, that we uh, are doing. Um, and we had several of our key younger guys, like Jason and John, when they were in high school, they did 40-day Daniel fast, which is different and uh, more appropriate for when you're 16 and 18 years old. And uh, not, not that appropriate to do a total fast when you're 16 or 18. Uh, actually, probably foolish. But, uh, you know, that has led to, like, these things about light and refreshing. I, you know, just in the last 15 years, God has helped me understand his purposes, his ways, uh, what he's doing in the earth, the Bible, like 25, 30 times more than I ever thought it would be impossible to understand it. And it's because of, of this. You can't reveal the Bible to yourself, no matter how much you study. God has to give you the insights. So I guess I just wanted to end with that kind of a test, and I want to refer back to this verse. Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render every man according to what he's done. Everyone will get rewards or, or not, or the opposite. We'll pick this up in the second meeting. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have a right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. His reward is him, but it's more than just him. His reward is changing your heart in such a way that you would maximally value him. And you really wouldn't care that much about anything else. Because that's true freedom. Amen.